I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Anthony Gottlieb and uh, Julian Baghini. Uh, Anthony's the former executive editor of The Economist and the author of The Dream of Reason and The Dream of Enlightenment, the book we're here to discuss tonight, both published by Penguin Allen Lane, for whom much thanks for uh, setting up this event and, and all that. He'll be in conversation about this, uh, this marvellous new tome, uh, with Julian Bagini, the editor-in-chief of the Philosopher's Magazine and uh, the author of far too many books to list. But uh, the, the most recent is The Edge of Reason, like the Bridget Jones, but um, <laughs> not part of the series, just out from Granta. Yale, actually, sorry. Uh, uh, Yale, oh, sorry. the devil. Uh, you're quite right, I'm terribly sorry. It even <laughs> says Yale on my sheet here. Uh, Julian and Anthony will be in conversation for about 45 minutes following which there'll be time for questions from the floor, and I will turn over to Julian and Anthony for the rest. Julian and Anthony, welcome. Thanks very much indeed. When I was asked if I wanted to take part in this event, I I jumped at it, because uh, when the first volume in what's turned out to be a trilogy came out, The Dream of Reason, 13 years ago now, was it? Or was it even longer? Uh, 16. 16 years ago, that's right. 16 years ago, I read it at the time, very much enjoyed it. I interviewed Anthony for the Philosopher's Magazine then and uh, was, was deeply impressed. And uh, we were expecting this second volume imminently. And as, as Anthony's probably tired of people reminding him, it's taken a very long time to come, but it's been well worth the, the wait. And um, if you've seen the reviews, you'll, you'll know it's been universally... Uh, welcomed and praised. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here and talk to you about this. And the other reason I'm keen to talk to you is that, perhaps we'll come to later, is that I have an interest, I guess, in what we might call meta-philosophy, issues around what philosophy is and, and how we do it. And I, th- I think that sometimes there's not enough of that stepping back done in philosophy. Well, what do we mean? We're, we're committed to reason and rationality and evidence and so forth. What does this really mean? And I think there are various ways in which the way Anthony approaches the history of philosophy, he's sensitive to those issues. It's not, that, it's not there officially as the foreground thing you're discussing, but you're very sensitive to them, and I think it'd be interesting to talk to you about those. Before, before we go into that, perhaps you can say a little bit about your long history with philosophy. I mean, you're you know, best known before that book as being executive editor of The Economist, but the philosophy wasn't something you just decided to do out of the blue. By any stretch, was it? No, it wasn't. So I studied philosophy as an undergraduate uh, at Cambridge and then did graduate work but dropped out to become a journalist. And then some years later, I think it must have been about 19... 
88 or, uh, 1988 or 89, I was in uh, New York uh, and Boston being the science editor of The Economist, and I heard about a conference that was going on in, in the University of California, Berkeley, about uh, Heidegger, and it was about applied, it was called Applied Heidegger, and I thought this is going to be a laugh, which indeed it was, <laughs> which indeed it was. and I uh, went there and uh, reported on it for the for the New York Times, whereupon all sorts of people came up and said, will you please write a book about 20th century philosophy, because they wanted to know more about uh, Heidegger along these lines, I think. I thought, well, yes, I would love to write a, a book about uh, 20th century philosophy, but then I thought, well, in order to understand the 20th century, I'm going to have to look a bit at the 19th century. And then I thought, well, but then I ought to look at the 18th century. Before, <laughs> before you, you don't, I think you don't have to be acquainted with Zeno's paradoxes to work out where that led me. I ended up being committed to doing a history of philosophy somehow. I suppose the, the foolish uh, ambition and enthusiasm of youth led me to believe I could do this in a short book in about four years, but here we, here we still are. <laughs> Your engagement with philosophy has been much more um, involved in that, hasn't it? I mean, you, when you were in London, you had a, was it a weekly or monthly reading group? Of oh, people? yes. I've, I've, uh, I've been part of philosophy discussion groups always um, throughout my uh, career as a journalist. I've been reviewing books on philosophy. I've been reading philosophy. I've come within an inch of going back to professional philosophy many times, never, never quite made it. But yes, it's always been my, my main intellectual passion, I would say. Now... Your background in The Economist, I think, is not irrelevant to the way you approach this book. And when I spoke to you about your, the first one, you explained this. You, you put it then, you said it, it impressed upon you the need to be both kosher and intelligible, was the right. phrase you used there. Um, how do those values, how do those journalistic values of, you learned at The Economist served you in writing these histories? Well, it was in particular my experience of the science section of The Economist, which led me to think that there was, as it were, a gap in the market, that someone should try and do for philosophy what The Economist tries to do for science, which is to make it lively and accessible, but still absolutely, as you say, uh, kosher, which uh, The Economist was, and I imagine still is, done by passing the articles through several experts, boffinising, as we used to call it. Uh, not giving them the final word on anything, but always listening carefully to what they had to say and asking them to try and find mistakes. And I, at the time when I was first pondering this book, had just been writing about uh, quantum cryptography for the general reader <laughs> in a relatively light-hearted way for a magazine. And I thought, well, if you can do that for quantum cryptography, surely it's worth a try, at least a try with, uh, with philosophy. And I suppose it was being taught to write at The Economist, which I very much was, because when I started there, it was so long ago that everything was done on hard copy and all corrections could be seen. There was a paper trail of every change, and very kindly, the people who taught me to write would show me why exactly they were changing every single word. <laughs> and that but eventually rubbed off, I suppose. You, saw that you used that phrase, boffinised, but it's more than just sort of getting experts to have a look at it. I mean, there's actually this thing about going... To sources, isn't it? I mean, yeah. And, and, and when you do that in history of philosophy, I think you found in both volumes that several things, which are perhaps repeated by other yes. boffins, even yeah. turn out Good point. not yeah, to be true. I mean, any any yeah. examples, perhaps, from this most recent volume? Well, sort of various small and large things, I suppose. I, I did uh, set out with both the first book and the second book to uh, question and try and check everything I could, even if it had been endlessly repeated 
to take a, a trivial but well-known, fairly well-known within philosophy example, it's commonly said that uh, Spinoza earned his living by um, grinding lenses for optical purposes. I mean, virtually every source said that, and indeed he did grind lenses, and they, he was famous for how good they were. Um, but it was quite common for people interested in science to do that. He was just particularly good at it. And I had never seen in any of the sources any evidence that this was really how he earned his money. And I had seen some early biographies in which that idea was expressed in a way that suggested it was somewhat romanticized, this idea of him toiling away. Also, there was the great fact that he, he died of, of a condition that may well have been uh, linked to grinding lenses, so people sort of liked that idea too. And to cut a long story short, I wrote to several of the scholars who specialised in Spinoza's life and said, what actually is the documentary evidence that he earned his money that way? And they all said, no, no, he didn't. He didn't. No, it was grants from friends. He didn't live on that. So that's, that's an example of a little historical thing. There were, there were, there were lots of little things, but... but, but I, no, certainly, there's a bigger thing. I don't want to suggest that to you, mm. but it's actually this whole standard textbook division into rationalists ah, and empiricists, yes, right? Sure. Which we'd have to explain to, before yeah, we okay. question it. <laughs> yeah. So... After Hegel, um, various German philosophers of the 19th century, it became usual to portray the period I'm writing about here, sort of early Enlightenment, as a, a, a battle between two schools of philosophers, empiricists and rationalists. And there's quite a lot of sense to doing that, but I, I came to the conclusion that on balance that caused more problems than it sold and it misled you in all sorts of ways. It's not uh, a label that these people used of themselves, which is always sort of suspicious. In fact, uh, Bacon, Francis Bacon, who was always classified as, together with the empiricists, Hobbes, Locke, Hume, Berkeley, specifically said, you know, the one thing I really don't want to be because this is really such rubbish is an empiricist. Um, And I think that on balance, it's best not to try and tell the story as a battle between these two sides. So I tried to go as far as I could to do without that, although I do talk about where these labels came from and what they they mean. Um, Now, this, uh, going back to the the point about your training at The Economist, which is about being sort of rigorous and everything. Now, a lot of people here perhaps read The Economist. I, I do myself. One thing I perhaps you sort of learn from The Economist is that that kind of insistence on factual accuracy is not actually inconsistent with taking a point of view. I mean, The Economist has a view on the way markets should work. It's, it's a liberal newspaper in the old-fashioned sense of the word. Now, it's an interesting point in itself that you know, a, a commitment to objectivity and truth is not inconsistent with having a, a point of view on something because often people mix the two up. But from your point of view... With your commitment to getting the facts straight, for you, was there a kind of a, as it were, a point, a perspective, an angle that you nevertheless wanted to get across? In other words, do you, do you have an agenda as well as a historical, historic historian's commitment or accuracy? Yeah. I would say various agendas developed in the course of writing. As I would find out more about uh, something, I'd begin to develop my own views, I'd begin to think that someone had been much misrepresented, I'd develop the desire to defend someone who had been attacked. In the, in the first book, I, uh, I wanted to defend Aristotle against the charges of being essentially anti-science and anti-empiricist. In this book, I wanted to defend Hobbes against uh, many of the charges that were made against him in his own lifetime, and I think he's also still not as 
well regarded as, uh, as he might be. So agendas, uh, agendas develop in the course of writing, but I didn't come in thinking, right, I'm going to write a history of Western philosophy which is going to support this ideology in general or in particular. No, I, I, I hope I went in with, uh, with uh, open eyes. Yeah. I want to take something from the, from the beginning of the book about your approach here. It is because they still have something to say to us that we can easily get these philosophers wrong. It's tempting to think that they speak our language and live in our world. But to understand them properly, we must step back into their shoes. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? And say a little bit about how, why it's easy to kind of think that we don't need historical mm. knowledge to really understand them. And what's gained by giving back that sense of time and place? Well, for one thing, I think it's important in order to understand what a philosopher is getting at to see what were the questions at the time that he uh, or she, it's usually in my book, uh, he was uh, dealing with. Because quite often, when you look at the questions now, and I'm going to give an example in, in a sec, we find that we're interested in slightly different angles on this question to what they were, and so we get them wrong if we don't say they step back into their shoes. Now, one, I think one uh, useful example of this is John Locke and the idea of the blank slate. Now, what Locke was mainly concerned to do in his discussion of innate ideas was to attack the idea that any view could be defended and really didn't need questioning if you could show that it was implanted in us, that we were born with it, which was something that was, was claimed in his day by many religious figures. You know, the idea of God is implanted in us, various views about God and various facts about the theoretical knowledge about the world is implanted in us. So there's no need to question them. They are planted there by God. Locke's main interest in questions of innateness was to do with that whole set of issues. Nowadays, people are interested in innateness for sort of from a different angle. They want to know to what extent, especially psychologists. If we think, for example, of Stephen Pinker's book, the uh, very well-known book, *The Blank Slate*, um, the question he is mainly interested in is to what extent are our minds preformed, uh, and to what extent does uh, are we free to just develop our, our concepts? Pinker very much sees Locke as one of those who thinks that everything comes in from experience and nothing is innate, whereas, in fact, uh, Locke goes on and on about how we have natural propensities to believe various things, we have natural propensities to form concepts in certain ways, people's characters and their moral personalities are, to, to a considerable extent, not open to change but are inherited. I mean, he was completely on in the modern terms, the innatist side there, he was dealing with something different. So I think that's one example where you have to go back in order to understand what he was doing properly and, and not believe some contemporary theorists who are interested in him to see how he fits in with what they're interested in now. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing to do, though, isn't it? Because you kind of risk two, two opposites. One is to make someone so much of their time that actually they can no longer speak to us. And the other is to yes. make them so timeless that you, you misunderstand yeah. them. Yeah, it's a balancing on, act. Yeah, and on balance, though, are there, are there any things that you've found which you just think are simply now out of date? You know, they, they're just not relevant at all? Or, or did you? Or is there always some element of relevance there in these thinkers? Oh, yeah, so there are sort of uh, philosophical ideas that I think you know, seem, seem to go nowhere, I would say. Descartes' form of mind-body dualism uh, is one because of this impossible question of how mind and body interact if you think of them as actually different substances. 
there, there, there are probably uh, a few others. Yes, I certainly don't think that you must always interpret the philosophers of, of the past in such a way that everything they said comes out true and plausible. That's, that's taking it too far. <laughs> yes. I think also, they're always disagreeing with one another, yeah. so that would be impossible. <laughs> um, one of the things that marked their time was an incredible optimism, it seems. You said at one point that many believed surely the truth was now just around the corner. Well, I mean, mm. well first of all, where, where did the optimism come from? Why was it such an optimistic time? That's a, a, a very good and interesting question. There's not really one for the historian of, of philosophy uh, <laughs> to answer, certainly not one uh, that I can answer. I can only say how it manifested itself in the development of science and philosophy at the time. I think all sorts of factors played a role. One is the, the Protestant Reformation, which gives it the, the idea of overthrowing and remaking the most important aspect of life in Europe in those days, which is the, the church and the Christian religion. Uh, the sudden discovery of, of new worlds, geographical uh, exploration, the you know, uh, discovery that the, the world really had much more in it than, uh, than people realised. And there will be many other factors too. They're factors in general history, and they're, they're fascinating, but tragically, I'm not going to explain them. Yeah, I mean, actually, some of the examples are quite striking, aren't they? So you talk about Hobbes's claim that a scientific grasp of human... I'm quoting, a scientific grasp of human nature could put an end to most civil wars, and Descartes' claim that a prediction that science would abolish all disease within his own lifetime. Yes. I mean, we can look back and smile at that kind of optimism. Do you, th- do you think the optimism of the time... Did it get in the way, or was it necessary or helpful in some way to the development of, of their thought? I think optimism of that sort, especially with pr- progress in science and theoretical knowledge, has to be helpful. You know, it, gives you, it gives you the courage to keep forging on. And I think the first thing we have to say before tittering too much about them is that I think we're in exactly the same position today. <laughs> Physicists regularly tell you that, or they, they used to until very, very recently, that we'll very soon have all the answers. It's really just around the corner. I mean, uh, Stephen Hawking's first book, The Brief History of Time, said that various things would be known and sorted out by a certain date. I forget what he said, but it's, we've long passed that date, and he doesn't repeat that claim in his new book, or rather he pushes it forward a bit. Um, and with, with medicine, again, you know, there are, if you read the newspapers, you'll find that various discoveries and things are right around the corner, and 30 yeah. years later, they still aren't. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I mean, we do see some of that optimism still today, but perhaps more fashionable is a kind of a, a pessimism. And part of that is manifest in a kind of dismissiveness of a lot of that enlightenment optimism. And as you point out, um, this has been, it's been blamed, in fact, that in the enlightenment by overestimating our belief in our own individual, individualism, power of reason, rationally organised society. This actually did lead to all sorts of horrendous things. You've got a list of fascism, communism, psychiatric malpractice, economic exploitation, sexism, the extinction of species, madcap utopian schemes, environmental degradation and uh, much else. Yeah. Now, you don't agree with that charge. Um, no, far but, from it. <laughs> but is there anything to it at all or is it just completely misguided? Uh, I tend towards the completely misguided interpretation. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, it, it's interesting that if, uh, Freud's essay on civilization and its discontents from early in the 20th century is a very interesting analysis of the way in which 
humanity seems to have progressed in so many ways, and yet there are all sorts of people who can only look on the bad side of it. So, and he, one example of, of his that I remember that he talked about was the development of railways and how you could now go and visit people who were a long way away and you could do so much more travel so more easily. And then he says, but then someone, said, you know, a, a mother or a parent will say, oh, this is a dreadful thing, it's enabled my child to go so far away. And Freud addressed the, the question of what, why is it that sort of whenever we move forward, a part of us or a part of a lot of us wants to look on the bad side. Uh, and I never quite understood his, <laughs> his diagnosis of why that was, but uh, his uh, idea that we do seem to have an urge to think like this is, is striking and interesting. And I think in the case of the Enlightenment, because we now regard ourselves as intellectually as the children of the Enlightenment and at least in theory, most of the time, pay lip service to its ideals, there's a part of us that sometimes wants to blame the parents for everything that's gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, but when you look at the individual cases of why, why exactly it is supposed to be mm. that some Enlightenment thinkers' ideas backfired, I just find that all terribly implausible and weakly supported. Yeah, I mean, interesting enough, the attack comes from so many different sides. There are sort of you know, left-wing versions and conservative versions... I mean, the conservative version, I guess, is that, you know, what the mistake of the Enlightenment was to put too much trust in human reason. This, mm. You know, yeah. you had the Dream of Reason as the title of your, your, the first volume, and this is Dream of Enlightenment. And, you know, that, in a sense, was responsible for the kind of hubris that we could just chuck out, you know, year zeros, get rid of the past, get rid of the whole order. And we had the intelligence and the wisdom and the insight to build from the ground up and often mm. went wrong. Is there perhaps something to that? Well, there are certainly some defenders of Enlightenment values and some sort of second- and third-rate thinkers who would have taken these things too far. But the, uh, the core Enlightenment heroes, in, in my view, are defenders uh, of the idea that one ought to be as reasonable as one can, and no more than that. It's mm. Not taking it too far... Uh, I don't think any of the major figures can, can really be blamed for that. Certainly not the, the main people we think of as the, the, the French Enlightenment, 18th century, the people who are most often blamed. Uh, I think that, that that period is best thought of not as the age of reason, which it's been called for mm. obvious reasons, because that's nice and snappy, uh, but the age of trying to be more reasonable is, I think, a much more accurate uh, way of looking at what they were doing. And if you, if you look at uh, Diderot and D'Alembert's uh, Encyclopédie, the, the great Enlightenment Encyclopedia, which really has to be the Bible of Enlightenment values, if anything is, if you look at some of their key articles on philosophy, on intellectuals, that is to say, the entry on philosophy, uh, and uh, many other of the general historical articles, you see they keep pressing again and again the point that we're not saying that reason can answer everything, mm and that you must suppress emotion. or We're not going that far. All we're saying is, please try to examine various claims a little more carefully, especially if they are made by the church with the intention of giving you a hard time. Yeah. I mean, there, there are many fine sentences in this book, but one I like relating to this is you kind of say the people who kind of lay all the blame on the Enlightenment thinkers... Uh, saying, in other words, if you get your ideas mangled many decades later by people who purport to be your followers, then it's partly your fault. So they're, they're getting blamed for the distortions that came later. I feel so, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just a little point about the... We're here to talk about the book as well as the ideas in it. And, uh, 
one of the things about the way it's written is that many points you you quote people who you you disagree with and you're you're criticising in some way, but actually you often so you, to, to find out who they are, you've got to look into the footnotes, yeah. right? So, for example, on this very point about criticism of the Enlightenment, you quote someone who said, "There's a prize for guessing who it is." No, there are no prizes for guessing who it is. Um, the legacy of the Enlightenment project is a world ruled by calculation and willfulness, which is humanly unintelligible and destructively purposeless. So this is an example of the kind of thing. Now, you don't name that, that author. You, it's there in the footnotes. Mm. Was it, uh, what, what was the thinking behind doing that? Sort of like, what, was it because you think you, it was you a distraction? You mean distra- not putting the name no. in the main was it, Do you think it was a distraction not to, 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 to uh, tie those views to a particular person? Or was it a kind of a politeness that you, you actually don't want to be t- too adversarial in, in that way? I would, I would say a bit of both. In that, I mean, sometimes there's someone where I, I do want to be ad- adversarial because <laughs> I think they're positively mischievous. It mm. wasn't the case there. Are you actually going to offer a prize for people to guess who it um, is? A free glass of wine. <laughs> Anyone? Yeah, John Gray. John Gray. First, free glass first of wine, time. Yeah. There you go. Free glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit of both. You say that, yeah. Um, yes. Now there are an awful lot of people mentioned in the text, but unless they are likely to be particularly well known or they are historically important, I would tend to just leave that in the footnotes if you want to know who it is. I mean, in terms of like being on the side of these thinkers, I think one of the things about the book is that you, you are on their side, broadly speaking. You don't hesitate from disagreeing, pointing out, like in Descartes' dualism where they're completely wrong. But you say it's kind of churlish to deny the fact that these people played important roles in various things. So what were the positives we look back on? What would be a good example of how, actually, they were part of fundamental changes we perhaps take for granted? I mean, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the way Hobbes was received in his time. That tells us something about how society has changed enormously. Yes, well, I think liberalising ideas of uh, religion and of God, freeing up ways of thinking of of God, uh, ways of conceiving of religion, uh, defending the toleration of different religions and people's own views, that is one of the most important things that virtually everyone in the book was very much on the side of, although sometimes in ways that... And this goes back to what we were saying before about assuming that they're speaking our language. Spinoza, Hobbes, various of the other characters, have often, it's often been said that they were the forerunners of the idea of the separation of church and state. And it's been said in some popular books about Spinoza, for example, that his views are reflected in the American constitutional amendment. I think believe it's an amendment, isn't it? That there shall not be uh, a state established Religion. Now, in fact, both Hobbes and Spinoza were firmly in favour of a state-established religion. Explicitly so. No one's ever denied that with Hobbes, and Spinoza is not quite so well known. Both of these people thought that the religious authorities were extremely dangerous and should not be given political... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So the state itself should regulate religion, basically in order to keep it out of the hands of the priests. They were on the side of a separation of church and state in one pretty clear sense. The church mustn't have too much power, but they also believed in a state religion for that reason. Yes, I mean, that, that's, you put about Hobbes, another nice line, you say something like, uh, you've got to remember in Hobbes's time, it was almost as bad to deny the existence of devils as it was to kind of be a devil or something. Of, of a witch. Yeah, yeah, of a witch, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we, we take these transformations for granted. I want to talk a little bit about perhaps David Hume on this. This goes yeah. back to this idea of the age of being more reasonable rather than the age of reason. I mean, Hume fascinates me as a figure, and I'm, I'm often surprised the way he's presented, even by a lot of... Um, apparent experts, Hume is often described as someone who is completely sceptical of reason. There's a very famous quote of his, you know, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions, which makes it sound like the only role of reason is a purely instrumental one in, you know, working out how we achieve our desires. Now, our desires aren't anything to do with reason. Now, I think you do a good job in this book of trying to explain why that characterization is mistaken, and that when Hume is critical of reason, he's actually critical of something quite specific. Um, yes. Can I get you to say a bit about that? Yes, yes. I think one of, one of the, the most important steps forward made by uh, Hume in, in, in epistemology and the, the theory of knowledge was I think he was one of the, the, the first people to realize and really drive home and to sort of really get the point that our knowledge is really continuous with the type of knowledge and belief that animals have in a lot of fields and is is based on our experience and can't go beyond that. We're not capable of proving all sorts of things that philosophers have traditionally thought we are able to prove. Going back to the Greeks, there was this idea of mathematics as the, and particularly what you could prove uh, in a Euclidean way as the ideal of knowledge. And I think Hume was very important in shifting us away from that towards uh, a more probabilistic understanding of knowledge, looking at, uh, at evidence and probability and not looking too hard for demonstrative proofs, which very many of the other people in, in the book, especially Hobbes and Locke also, I think to a striking extent, are still too much in the grip of this mathematical model of knowledge. Yeah, I think you said at one point that like falling in love with geometry was not seemed to be an occupational hazard of Indeed, philosophers absolutely. at the time. It was. But to, to yeah. go to dig a bit more at this this Hume point, I mean, mm-hmm. 
Hume's often associated with what is in the contemporary parlance called this problem of, of induction. Yeah. So the, well, what's the problem of induction? Okay, well, first of all, Hume didn't think it was a problem. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, suppose um, you, want, you want to know whether the sun is going to rise tomorrow. And, you know, we all believe that it does, and we think that we are justified in believing that it does. And Hume pressed to the question, what is the nature of our justification for that sort of belief? The first thing someone will say is, well, it's always arisen in the past. And Hume's really ingenious thing was to point out that if you're trying to defend extrapolating from experience, you can't do that by merely trying to extrapolate from experience. So we say the, the, the sun is... It's reasonable to believe the sun's going to rise tomorrow because uh, it has always done so in the past. And you say to someone, well, why should you, uh, why should you trust what, what's happened in the past? All you're going to be able to do is to go round in a circle. This is what Hume argued, and I think he was, he was fundamentally right. But he, he didn't see this as an attempt to... He wasn't trying to undermine our confidence that, for example, the sun will, will rise uh, tomorrow. He was trying to explain the nature of that piece of knowledge. Yeah. So for him, it wasn't a problem. But as later philosophers pointed out, well, there is really an, quite an interesting question here about how we do justify it. Uh, it's just one that Hume wasn't really into himself. So the, uh, it is, the problem of reduction is a real philosophical problem. But, but, but how... He didn't see it. Yeah, but was Hume right, in a sense, not to think of it as being a huge problem? Because it wasn't mm. Hume's fundamental point is that mm. We have to, if we take an honest look at how we reason, we have to recognise the fact that this kind of strictly logical, geometric, mathematical logic only has its place really in very specific domains. Mm -hmm. And that most of the time we're reasoning, we're using an interesting combination of, you know, instinct, pattern seeking and so forth. Mm -hmm. And these things simply don't <coughs> obey strict logical rules. And that's okay. And actually, the interesting thing is that Hume, I agree with you, Hume thought that was okay, but actually, even a lot of people who sort of admire Hume today, they're not as okay with it as he was, was no. he? I mean, we still find it troubling. Yeah. It's, it's well, this is one of the great things about Hume. He is so challenging, and he set all these problems that um, still keep us thinking. And, you know, I think there's a very interesting problem about induction, which, about induction, which is not to say that I think we should... Uh, not rely on inductive knowledge. We have no choice. We have to. And did perhaps before we open up, just to say that to switch to another thing. Actually, before we do, mm. Descartes, I want to Leibniz because mm. um, I, I sort of seem to be tone deaf to Leibniz. You know, I, I've never been persuaded. I mean, you, you persuade me that he's an important figure, but what could you say to me and people in the room to make mm. people think I really ought to go and read Leibniz? His ideas are genuinely. Interesting. It's not just he's very clearly important historically. He was a polymath. He was really bright. He yeah. actually said things which is worth taking an interest in. Can you convert me? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. No, right. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I think not. No. I mean, for for one thing, uh, most of Leibniz's best work was technical and in short papers, and was not actually in what we now now call um, philosophy. Now, it's, it's very useful for teachers of philosophy and students of philosophy to wrestle with his texts and I think that's also true of Berkeley who I don't talk about in the book very much um, 
but while he was an, an admirable and I think fascinating from the point of view of intellectual history person, I would not say there are great steps forward in, in, uh, in philosophy. Now, there are some, I think, who would look at many of his discussions and especially his criticisms of Locke and say that was really brilliant. I'm one of them. I would, I, I would agree. But, I, but I, would not, I would not say you really have to start reading more Leibniz unless you've already read a lot of other philosophers. I wouldn't put him terribly high on the list. So I w- I would, I'm afraid I wouldn't try <laughs> and convert you. But he's worth finding out about for what reason then? I mean, you know, I mean, don't be sort of too challenging mm, here, sure but there's no, a chapter sure. in the book, right, on him, right, which yeah. I found interesting. So what, yes. what, merits is, what makes him worthy of that? from our point of view now? Well, there's, there's, uh, there's a number of things. First of all, uh, how astonishingly far ahead of his time he was in his thinking about uh, mathematics and logic and some aspects of science. Part of the reason he's in there is that he came up with various ideas which other people had very interesting refutations of. Mm. So, uh, just to take one example, uh, Voltaire's tale, Candide, uh, is, an, is essentially an attempted refutation of some work of Leibniz's. And I think a lot of people think of, uh, of, of Candide as uh, just a bit of fun, but I think underneath it makes some important philosophical points. But in order to explain those, of course, you have to give Leibniz his original. And I find, it, I find Leibniz rather, rather fascinating, yeah. but not all that important in that way. Um, just find a few final things on Descartes. Descartes is a fascinating figure. And, you know, we talk about the canards which uh, come out, and he's subject to, to, to many of them. He's accused now a lot of the time of being responsible for this sharp distinction between mind and body, which is also blamed for by people like Al Gore and Prince Charles for the separate. Yeah, well, if you bring those two together, that's, is that an achievement? Well, maybe not. Um, you know, for the separation, quite proud of it. <laughs> the separation, the separation of humanity and nature. Now, you, you said earlier that Descartes' dualism is a mistake. It left went nowhere. But to what extent is it actually nevertheless unfair to lay at his feet the blame for this you know, stark distinction between mind and body, humanity and nature? I, I, I mentioned Al Gore and Prince Charles because both of them have tried in various writings to trace the sort of attitude to nature that encourages us or some of us to think that nature is just there to be despoiled and done with whatever you like, whatever you like. Tracing that back from the idea of a fundamental distinction between mind and body, and I just can't see it at all. I mean, for one, th- I think if you really, if you want to look for a text to blame, it would make a hell of a lot more sense to go to the Old Testament and what that has, that has to say uh, about Earth being uh, here for us to mess around with as we wish. Uh, so I really didn't see this was a plausible connection with the, with uh, Descartes at all. And the other interesting thing is looking back on Descartes in any kind of contemporary undergraduate course, for example, mm. will make the central interest of Descartes, these, uh, the problem of knowledge, how we can know things. Yeah. Um, and actually, you point out that Descartes himself explicitly said that we shouldn't spend too much time on mm. these metaphysical issues. Yeah. And you don't think that the problem of knowledge was actually central at all in this, in this period of people's thinking. So, Not quite as important as people thought, yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what led to that misunderstanding? And what's a, what's a better way of understanding the question of knowledge in that time if not if it's not the central core mm-hmm. preoccupation what was its role there well some of these philosophers were interested in problems of knowledge and others were Descartes was Hume was uh, Spinoza wasn't really and Leibniz wasn't really and that's why I think it's misleading to present the great 17th and 18th century 
philosophers is concerned entirely with the problem of knowledge. I mean, because it's plausible to say that Descartes kicked off modern philosophy with his sceptical questioning, you can see why people would, would, would think, well, maybe it was all a matter of dealing with the sceptical questioning all the way through, but I don't think it was. Now, what you said just at the beginning of this question about... Uh, Descartes telling people they shouldn't bother too much with these metaphysical questions. Uh, this was because he thought he had answered them all. <laughs> he had dealt with what we now uh, think of as philosophy, and he, wa he wanted people to move on to what we now think of as science. Mm. But, you know, I've, I've, I've done all the mind-body knowledge stuff. We just get on with the physics now. Yeah, and, uh, well, maybe, maybe we should be getting on with the physics. Well, Let no, me because we haven't resolved it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's go on with some questions. We have some microphones. Uh, so who wants to kick us off? Um, well, hi, Anton. Thank you for this book. I think it's very good sort of popularization of Enlightenment ideas. I did have one question. The first thing I read is the table of contents. I see that Hobbes gets about 50 pages, mm. and then Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot, D'Alembert all mm. get 12 altogether. Mm. Um, I just was wondering what motivated you to sort of shall we say, compress the French 18th century Enlightenment yeah. and if you're going to be treating it in a subsequent yeah. book or anything like that? Right. Um, no, not, not all that much. I will not be treating it all that much. So I focus mainly in this book in the, the more technical aspects uh, and sides of philosophy because I think that's what most needs explaining. Uh, n neither Rousseau nor Voltaire had all that much interest in or competence in this technical side of uh, uh, philosophy, although they're, they're very much involved in the, in the story. Also, I mean, there are endless good and understandable books uh, and essays about Voltaire and Rousseau. It's more the Leibniz, the Spinoza, the Hume that I think need more explaining, uh, and Hobbes. Uh, and so that's why I spent more time on it. It's more a matter of the nature of the focus of the book. Um, you've mentioned many times uh, reason, and your first book was The Dream of Reason, which I bought some time ago and enjoyed. I wondered what was your view on George Bernard Shaw's attitude to the reasonable man. He said something like, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world, the unreasonable man expects the world to adapt itself to him, therefore progress only occurs via unreasonable men. Discuss. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, if we, if we look at the, the, the people to whom we wish to attribute progress, uh, are they, on the whole, irrational people? I mean, hard to think of some examples, really. I, uh, I dare not even suggest a couple of names that come to mind. You know, 20th century hmm. politics. Um, a female prime minister, for example. <laughs> what, so she would be an example of... An unreasonable person. Yeah. Perhaps did achieve some... Uh, sorry. Um, no, I'm, I know I'm digging a hole here, but it, it's, uh, my background is in science. I worked with a wonderful man from Northern Ireland who was the most unreasonable person you could ever meet, and yet he achieved some wonderful things purely by, well, for want of a better word, bloody-mindedness. And, and in industry there was the idea, just do it, and that was something that did work. Well, reason and reasonableness uh, cover a multitude of sins, uh, come in all sorts of uh, forms, uh, even some of those who, in philosophy where, or social theory, were keenest to stress the importance of reason as opposed to, for example, faith or authority, which is what, in the context of this book, reason is usually contrasted with. They may have been very sort of bloody-minded and 
rude and unpleasant personally. Descartes was actually such an example. I quote quite a lot from his private correspondence, which gives very frank expressions of his uh, attitudes to various people. Uh, He was an extremely uh, rude and intemperate uh, person. (laughs) So, you know, different senses of reason, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's just worth picking up on, isn't it? Because, I mean, what Bernard Shaw is talking about, he says the unreasonable person is often someone who, in the philosophical sense, is perhaps a paragon of reason. So one can imagine Descartes Jr., you know, is, is being accused of being unreasonable because, you know, um, can't you just accept? Well, why are you sitting here, you know, he says, Mum, Mum, I, I might be dreaming. Or, How do I know I'm not dreaming? And stop, start being, don't be unreasonable, right? Exactly. Yeah? So the unreasonable in that sense is a kind of refusal to conform, actually, which is the exact opposite of the kind of reasonableness of the philosopher, which is a the willingness to challenge, and perhaps that's, I don't know, it's just an yeah. idea. I do think the willingness to challenge, uh, I like to think of that as the essence of the, the philosophical spirit. Bit of a chestnut. Do you think that philosophy makes progress, and if it doesn't, if you think it doesn't, does it matter? Uh, I think it does make progress in all sorts of different ways. On the other hand, you know, sometimes it goes forward and then goes backwards a bit, Sometimes it makes progress in a way that doesn't look like progress because whatever area of philosophy is generally held to have now made some concrete progress instantly gets shunted out of philosophy. I mean, that's to put it crudely, that's where science came from. That's where economics uh, came from. That's where empirical psychology came from. Now, that, of course, leaves this core of, of, of philosophy... Uh, the bits that haven't floated off yet. Is it making progress? Well, I think it's, I, I think it's in a particularly healthy state, actually, these days. Looking broadly, I'm talking about sort of hundreds of years rather than this year rather than last year, as opposed to last year. Progress in all, in all, in all sorts of different ways, though. Hard to generalise about. I don't feel there's a problem of progress, let's, let's say. I hope you'll excuse the vague answer. Yeah, is... <laughs> the, way, the way philosophy is done in our society, the way it's focused, is that conducive to progress? Because some people are uh, concerned that Mm. it's become so professionalised that it becomes people basically solving puzzles set by peers and predecessors rather than pursuing perennial questions. Is is that something you you worried about? Or do you think that the system manages to generate enough of the good stuff that we don't have to worry about that. The latter. The latter. I do, I do think <laughs> philosophy is becoming increasingly scholastic because there's now a very, very large uh, philosophical community uh, that, so that you, it doesn't really need to address people outside that community. You can make a good business within it. But yeah. on the other hand, there are still enough people. And you, don't, you really don't need more than a, than a, a few in each subject per generation Yeah. who... Uh, have a broader perspective and are capable of communicating to those in other disciplines and other corners of the discipline. So I, I, think, the balance is, I think the balance is quite good. We, we've got the people working hard at the coalface who no one except their immediate co-workers can yeah. understand, and then filtering back, you have people who are capable of communicating more generally. And... Yeah. There is always a principle, of course, that 95% of anything at any time is crap. Yes, so absolutely. There is you know, that, we yeah. shouldn't be surprised if you sort of like take a random sample of academic papers and find yes. them useless. Good. Yes. Who's next up on the, uh, the question discussion point list? Yes, gentleman at the end there, if you wait for the microphone. I was wondering if you had anything to say on the Enlightenment and education. Recently I've been reading Kurt Sayer's novels 
on uh, the early life of Jesus and the education of Jesus. It's allegorical to some extent, but this child is seen as exceptional and um, full of all sorts of what I'd call enlightened ideas on storytelling and that kind of thing in education, not rigid mathematical adding up, etc. I just wondered if you had it. I'm eager to learn, so if you have anything to say... It's a bit outside my field, really. I mean, uh, within the confines of this book, so uh, Rousseau, of course, had a great deal to say about education. Now, I uh, don't actually discuss that uh, in the book. Education, per se, is also something that that, that, uh, Locke wrote about to a certain extent. But the philosophy of education is something that I don't know a lot about and don't have much uh, feeling for. I don't know about, about you, if you... Um, no, no, I don't know. But I mean, I suppose I'm kind of interested about the role philosophy can and should play mm. in the educational system. In, in our country, it doesn't, fa- mm. very famously doesn't. Um, there's no, you can leave school without ever having encountered a single philosopher, for sure. Is that a lack in our society? I mean, I mean is, is, there any, is there evangelical in these books? Do you think more people ought to be um, engaging with philosophy? Well, I'm a bit sort of conflicted on this. Obviously, yeah. I, would, I would like there to be more people who were interested in reading philosophy books. And if they... <laughs> and I don't just <laughs> I mean for the sort of obvious reason. I mean, you know, it's a subject I'm very interested in, and I'd I like there to be more people I can talk to about it. And undoubtedly, if it was taught in schools in the way that it is in France you would have a, a better in, informed... You would have a populace that was better informed about philosophy to some, to some extent and would be more interested in it, and that's an idea that attracts me. On the other hand, I don't think we are educationally crippled by not being forced to do philosophy. I mean, many people, like me, probably you, other people interested in philosophy, they did get into it at school off their own bat without any help. Yeah. Uh, and you can do yeah, I suppose for me, I mean, it's interesting, the French example is often given, but the French baccalaureate teaches a thing called theory of knowledge, which doesn't involve a lot of study of philosophical texts. It's more like an encouraging of the kind of philosophical approach, as it were, isn't it? That the, the reflection mm. and the analysis and that, you know, questioning of assumptions. And, yeah, you know, I, I sometimes think, like, I'm a bit conflicted on it. People assume that if you're into philosophy, you must be in favour of more philosophy in schools, but... I think I'm in favour of a more philosophical education rather mm. than more philosophy in schools, if you can see the distinction there. Mm. I've just got to say, you're hopelessly underestimating the impact... Sorry, I missed the beginning you're, of You're that. hopelessly underestimating mm. the impact of recent funding cuts and Brexit on non-STEM subjects in universities. You're talking about philosophy in schools. Mm. Never mind, about what about teaching philosophy in universities? You know, it's it's... It's under attack, actually. I speak. I started life as a philosopher and mm-hmm. ended up as a professor of sociology, because, which is also under attack now, of course. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I think, I think um, Julian's point about philosophical thinking is maybe the way to go because philosophy is under attack, and you know, there's a complacency about people being interested here, and it's great. I've really enjoyed tonight, but I think we really need to think a bit more about critical thinking in the wider terrain, mm. and that's, that's all I, I needed to speak. I mean, is education becoming too utilitarian, effectively? Oh. I mean, that's a, in, 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 with a small um, you, with a small you, not the yeah. million. Uh, that's certainly my impression, yeah. yes, that it, that, uh, that it is.
Yeah. yeah. Uh, especially in the States. I've lived in the States for quite, uh, quite a really? while now. Also, yeah. Um, yeah. When one reads particular philosophers, there are times, I'm sure you felt it like I felt it, that you feel this person's really saying something, I think Quake's got a phrase, it talks to my condition, or something that you think, mm. wow, that really mm. has changed the way that I've seen things. And of course you can say it applies to all of them. But I mm. wondered whether your exploration recently, mm. there was someone in particular, and you thought, yes, that really is something, and I've really learned something, and changed my way of seeing the world. Mm. Very, yeah, extremely good question. Well, my, uh, my, my favourite in the book is, is probably David Hume, which... Uh, right David, answer, right, right yeah. answer. Uh, uh, that was it's not very carefully hidden. Uh, I would say, uh, certainly over the years, I've, I've learned a lot from him, I believe. Um, now, I had been studying him for a very long time before I started going on, on this book, and so it's not the case that in the course of the book I've come across new stuff about him and thought this has changed my views. They've sort of evolved together with my knowledge of Hume uh, over a long period. Um, things that, sort of, that, I, that, that I sort of found out in the course of uh, writing this book, uh, thinking, ah, yes, now I can see my way forward on this. Um, perhaps disappointingly, they're all negative. <laughs> <laughs> They've been, aha, so the Enlightenment wasn't such a bad thing, because I was quite tempted by a lot of yeah, yeah. criticism of the Enlightenment before I got into it more. I came to admire various figures, especially Spinoza, uh, and actually Hobbes more while working on it. But I, I, I can't think of uh, my mind having been changed, but then I've been thinking about all this for a terribly long time now. So. <laughs> but, but you shouldn't underestimate the importance of those negatives. Um, I, think you, I believe you were working on a book on Wittgenstein, who famously said that the purpose of philosophy was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. Yeah. In other words, that actually a lot of the time uh, it's not about discovering great truths, it's recognising the ways in which we've yes. been mistaken. Yes. And you get rid of those errors, eliminate the errors. Yeah, yeah I do a lot of that. Right. <laughs> uh, I've been forever discovering that I was mistaken. Well, it's been really interesting. Anthony will be signing, obviously, um, copies of this book and the first uh, volume, Dream of Reason. Uh, I, I, I can wholeheartedly and honestly recommend both of them to you. And I, I do suggest, if you don't have the Dream of Reason, yeah. do get it as well. Start at the beginning, work your way up. <laughs> we'll wait for the Volume 3. How long do you think we have to wait? Another 16 years, maybe? It or could be. It could I, be. I hope it'll be within my lifetime. It could be. Um, I, just wanted to, I, I just wanted to say, at the end, at the end of the book, um, talking about the philosophers mentioned in this book, Anthony says, you know, despite their many failings and despite the fact we may not live in the best of all possible worlds, these pioneers helped to make our world an intellectually adventurous and a less ignorant one. And I think that that's what his book does too. It helps us to live a more intellectually adventurous and less ignorant life. And that's pretty good for a book, isn't it? So um, <laughs> do enjoy it and do join me in thanking Anthony Gottlieb. Thank, so you much. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>